If you have your Bibles, I want to turn to 1 Corinthians, or I want you to turn or scroll to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We've been talking about, uh, for the last couple of, well, actually started last week, we've been talking about this ideal of church life. What does it mean to be the church? What is the function of the church? What is the role of the church? What does the church look like? What is the character and the nature of the church? We have been working through this, and I want to continue to work through this today. The Bible has several metaphors that it that it points to, uh, to describe the church. And, 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 and all of these metaphors help us better understand the nature and the role and the function of the church. And so in some ways, when you think about it, studying the church is like looking into a prism. If you've ever held a prism up in front of your face and you, and you turn it, um, based on how the light is shining into that prism and refracting uh, onto that prism, you will get different colors and different shades. And so there'll be a, a, a glimpse of something new each turn you make with the prism. And the church is very much like that. These metaphors are kind of like putting that prism up and turning it. You see different things about the church as you look at all of these different metaphors concerning the church. So for the next few weeks, I want to look at some of these different metaphors, some of the major ones in scripture. There's dozens of them, but I want to look at some of the major ones. This morning, I want to look at the metaphor of the body of Christ. The body of Christ as well is one of the more well-established metaphors. We all, if you've been in church for any time, you've heard the church referred to as the body of Christ. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we hear this reference concerning the body of Christ. In fact, it's mentioned in other places as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we who are many are one body. Um, Ephesians chapter 5, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. We are members of Christ's body, chapter 5, verse 30. And then Romans chapter 12, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members, one of another. So again, we are at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where it references Christ's church as a body. You know, several years ago, I was at work, and, 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 and it was one of the more startling moments in my life. I was doing the normal things and going and walking down the hall, but I had been under an immense amount of pressure and immense amount of stress um, walking down the hall um, at, at my job. And as I was walking down the hall, it felt like my chest was about to burst open, and I immediately panicked. I went to the doctor to try to get some, uh, get some instruction as to what to do next. We happened to have an in-house doctor at the place that I was, in, uh, I was working at. And so we went, I, and he happened to be there that day. So I went and talked to him and found out that it was really just stress. There was nothing to worry about, nothing to be concerned about. And so, and so it, was a, it, it was one of those close calls, if you will. But as I was reflecting on that moment in preparation for this sermon, the one thing I couldn't forget was the idea of how everything else in my body was functioning that day. But the heart wasn't functioning that day. And I knew that if something happened to the heart, it didn't matter what else was going to function. It didn't matter what else was working. I would have died that day. You can have all the pieces working, and yet there are pieces that are needed, right? Have you ever had that one thing in your body go bad and it seems like it impacts everything else in your body? Have you ever had that toothache? The toothache, just one tooth aching, and it literally feels like your entire body is about to shut down based on that one tooth. 
Have you ever had that crazy backache? One disc in your back. And literally, you can't even walk based on that one disc. Everything feels like it's shutting down based on that one disc. You know, the body is an amazing creation, but the body is a very dependent creation. It needs all the pieces working and functioning in order, to, in order to thrive, in order to be at its best. Each member of the body is interconnected. Each member leans and depends on another. No piece operates separately or independently. And it's certainly, and even if you say, well, maybe this piece does, it certainly doesn't operate well without the necessary assistance and help and aid of the rest of the body. In fact, if you amputate a member of your body, the, 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 the moment that member is amputated, you can rest assured that, that that member will eventually die. And this is the imagery that we should think about when we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and when we hear the words, the body of Christ. Verse 12 says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. The way in which the body is constructed and functions is a picture of the way in which the body of Christ is constructed and functions. Many different members, yet many essential members. In verse, chapter, in, in verse 13 through 20 of chapter 12, we see Paul describing what it means for the body to be made of many different members. Many different members. First point this morning is that we are one body with many different members. Verse 13, it says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This body, this body, the church, which is in the Greek ecclesia, meaning called out for a purpose. It's actually a political term. That was, a, that, that was eventually used and, and, and adopted, and, 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 and instead of being called out for political purposes, called out into a gathering, now it refers to called out for the purposes of Christ and the mission of Christ into a gathering and assembly of people. But this body is composed of members that transcend ethnicity and culture. The scripture says, Paul says, that this body transcends Jews and Greeks. In other words, many different members. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ should be the clearest demonstration that union with Christ transcends ethnicity, transcends culture, transcends differences. Jews and Greeks were two very different groups, two very different cultures, didn't necessarily even like each other that much. However, in Christ, these different ethnicities and these very different cultures are joined together in one body. They, Jew, Greek, Asian, African, European, Hispanic, are called out of darkness into one body, the body of Jesus Christ for, for one all-encompassing purpose, that being the glory of Jesus Christ. 
This body is not composed of members that transcend ethnicity. And this body is not composed of members that, or, or, or this body rather is not only composed of members that transcend ethnicity and transcend culture, but this body is composed of members that transcend class. And this body is composed of members that transcend sociological status. In other words, Jew or Greek, slave or free. Many different members. Slaves are free. We are one in Christ, equal worth, equal status. In James 2, the apostle and half-brother of Jesus gives us this warning regarding partiality or regarding classism. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, then you say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? One of the greatest witnesses of the church in the early years was the solidarity that they were able to show through class. In other words, transcending class so that slave and free man had similar seats at the table. No one was put down. No one was raised too high. But they were all equal because they were brothers and sisters of the Lord and, and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in the letter that, that Paul writes to Philemon, one who actually owned the slave, Onesimus, he says, welcome back, Onesimus, as a brother, as a brother. In other words, this man had legal right over this man, but Paul says, don't treat him as if he's underneath you. Treat him as if he's a brother of yours. Many different, yet many equal members. But we, of course, know that the church struggles with this, right? We've struggled through this through the years because the church is, in fact, made up of sinners. And those sinners aren't going anywhere. You think about, obviously, American slavery and, and the struggles with equality in Christ. One of the great horrors about, about that early day of slavery was the perversion of this great truth about us being one in Christ. In fact, the British had a policy that prohibited slaves from remaining slaves or, sla or prohibited slaves from remaining slaves once they became gospel believers, savers, or, or saved by Jesus Christ. In America, as the slavery institution began to escalate and be, we begin to be more dependent on that institution, many of the slave masters begin to worry that if their slaves were evangelized when the missionaries begin to teach Jesus, they begin to worry that if they got saved, that they would also have to become free. And so they worked out with the approval of the preachers and the pastors, they worked out a way where in 1667, Virginia passed a law saying that baptism does not change your social status. The hope was that they can begin to evangelize while not disrupting status quo and basically having a Christianity that does not disrupt 
the classes. This is not what Paul means when he says different members. He says different members yet equal members. He is looking for a way to to reduce those who are proud and elevate those that are humble to the place where we are all level. Even when you think about now, in in today's era, in today's time, we know that we are struggling with unity in God's church. We are living in a time where where we are encouraged nonstop to think the most about the most extreme or to think the worst, rather, about the most extreme among us. And to think, the, to think the very best version concerning ourselves. And so we want to think the absolute worst when it comes to the people around us that aren't like us. But we want to think the very best about ourselves and how we see ourselves. We are living in a moment where, where peace is rarely publicized in our culture. And anger is constantly sensationalized in our culture. We are living in a moment where chants for justice are met with suspicion, and we are living in a moment where calls for peace are met with frustration. We are living in a difficult moment for the church and all of its different members in this United States. The union of its members are being tested. The union of its members are being strained. How do we as different members in one body remain united and remain equal in a divided and unequal world? We do so with the help of the Spirit of God. Look at verse 13. It says, and notice, notice what's happening in verse 13. The work of oneness is initiated by the Spirit of God. Verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. This isn't intended to highlight some sort of special baptism that separates one group of Christians from another group of Christians. This is instead intended to highlight the manner in which the Spirit has brought us all into one body, no matter the socioeconomic status, no matter the ethnicity, no matter the culture, we are one body. The Spirit is the binding force for our unity. We are one body as a, and as a result of divine power for, uh, as a result of divine power forging and binding us together, we stay one body. No other group, no other assembly, no other organization can lay claim to this. No football team, no civic club, no school alumni group. No ethnicity, no culture, no political organization. All these groups are bound by natural commonality. Love of sports, natural, binds some. Place of birth, natural, binds others. Where we went to school, natural, binds a few more. But the body of Christ is bound supernaturally through the Holy Spirit testifying to us concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. It binds us together through the gospel of Christ, and it is because it is supernatural that we are able to transcend all the natural differences and all the natural inequities to become one body of many different members. But also notice the second half of verse 13. And all were made to drink of one spirit. So we were baptized by this spirit into one body, and we drink 
from this spirit. The sustainer of our unity in Christ will be the same person that established our unity in Christ. The one who keeps this unity is the same one that began this unity. To drink of the spirit is to be nourished for, uh, for this one body. It's to be nourished and fed with what is necessary to preserve and maintain and keep this unity. When you consider that this passage about drinking from the Spirit and being baptized in the Spirit is resting in a larger passage in chapter 12 through 14 about the gifts that God gives us through His Spirit, we can't miss that Paul is probably pointing to the reality that all of the gifting God has given us through his spirit should be used, listen, to deepen the oneness we enjoy in the body. So the spirit gifts some with love and charity, some with mercy and generosity, some with discernment, some with leadership and some with administration. But why does he do it? He does it for his glory. And, and how is one way that glory can be displayed? Glory can be displayed when those gifts are being used to deepen our unity in Jesus Christ. So our joining in the body is by the Spirit. And our keeping in the body is by the Spirit. And the Spirit is what gives us the ability to forgive the deep hurts when the world says forgiveness is so tired and old and outdated. And the Spirit is what gives you the empathy to listen to your brothers and listen to your sisters who are hurting when the world asks you, what's the use in, in, in continuing to talk? This work of unity is the work of the Spirit of the living God. Now, do you believe that? Do you live like you believe that? Do you pray like you believe that? Because if you believe that, then you should no longer depend on your own strength to preserve unity. You should look deeper, and you should look to the supernatural. You should look to the divine. You should look to the spirit for the help to preserve the unity around you. Is our relationships fracturing around you right now? If they are, you shouldn't consider that your own strength and willpower is the key to the restoration of those relationships. If those relationships are in Christ, then the key to the sustaining of those relationships is his spirit, which means we must lean to his spirit, which means we must depend on his spirit, which means we must rely on his spirit, which means we must seek the face of God for love and patience and compassion and mercy and grace, the, all of these gifts and all of these fruit that are required in order to love, in order to be united. We are one body with many different members, but my final point this morning is that we are one body with many different essential members. It's been said that Paul, with the metaphor of body and members, could have in mind an old Roman fable that was told during a period of unrest between the 5th and 6th century B.C. Some of the commoners in the Roman Empire seceded from the, the Roman Empire, and they were breaking loose from the upper class with the goal of basically saying, hey, we don't feel like the Roman Empire is doing all the things that they should, so we're going to try to get out of this and do things on our own. And of course, they were taking with them economy and commerce and stores and labor, 
And there was one Roman, Roman council, one Roman official, who told a story to the lower class members who were trying to break free. He told them a story about all the different members of the body saying that the stomach isn't paying its fair share. The stomach is not paying its fair share. We work, we pick up, we go, and we, the hands go, and the hands and arms go, and pick up the things that the stomach needs for food. And then they cook it, and then they feed it to the mouth, and the mouth chews and chews and chews to break these things down. And then it goes down into the stomach who's just ready to receive it says that the member said, we're going to leave the stomach out of this because the stomach isn't doing its fair share. And then, guess what happens? They try to starve the stomach. And in starving the stomach, the rest of the body grows weak. And that official says, that's what you guys are doing. You think Rome isn't helping you, and so you think you're going to break loose. But in breaking loose, you're weakening yourselves. And guess what? He convinced them. They turned back around and they said, okay, you're right. And they went back. And then, of course, they tried to succeed about four more times. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is, is that they saw in this moment the necessity and the importance of the body. Paul takes that story to the next level. He, instead of rooting it in the political, roots it in the spiritual. Paul addresses the essential nature of the members, all the members contributing, from, and he does so from two vantage points. He does so from the first vantage point to those, that, to those members who are saying, I am not needed by you, the body. And then he does it from a second vantage point for those that are saying, I don't need you, the body. So one group is saying, I am not needed by you. Another group is saying, I don't need you. And Paul addresses both groups. As I mentioned earlier, this text that we're reading is a part of a larger text about gifts, spiritual gifts. The Corinthian church has allowed spiritual gifts, sadly and unfortunately, tools that were used to build up the church and strengthen the church and unify the church. They've used it now. They've weaponized it. And instead of building up, they're tearing it down. Instead of strengthening it, they're weakening it. Instead of uniting it, they're dividing it with the very tools that were built for the opposite purposes. Have you ever, have you ever experienced that? Where these gifts that were used, intended for one purpose, ends up being the very, ends up intent or ends up actually accomplishing the very opposite thing. The more public gifts were the gifts that were being elevated along with the people who operated in those gifts. They were being elevated and placed on the plateau or placed on the platform, rather. And the less gifts, the, the less public gifts, were the ones that were being downgraded. They, these, these, and not only were the gifts being downgraded, but the people were being downgraded, considered less valuable, placed to the side. So this is the context in which Paul is writing these verses. You look at verse 14, it says, For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? For many, 
they probably saw the more prominent giftings in operation and they heard the praises being heaped onto the hearers or the bearers of those gifts and they probably mumbled to themselves, I am not as gifted as that. And thus, I am probably not needed like those folks are needed. I'm probably no use, of no use to this body. Have you ever felt like this? Have you ever felt like this in a church? Have you ever felt like this in a group? Have you ever seen some of the more public giftings at work? People singing, people preaching, people being in front of the camera, and you've said to yourselves, well, maybe, maybe my call is just to sit back and not do anything. The church has so much for you to do. Let me be clear when I say church. I'm not simply talking about what happens here on Sunday morning. I guarantee that in the time in which this passage was written, many of the things that we do on Sunday morning would be foreign to them. So it was not about the Sunday morning experience that Paul was calling on them to understand that they were needed. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't be involved in what happens here on Sunday morning. We have all sorts of ways that you can contribute and be involved. All this media that you see needs hands to, to operate it. And, 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 and the children that we teach need teachers to instruct them. And, and the beautiful, warm smiles that you see at the front door need more beautiful, warm smiles to greet people as they come through these doors. So, it's, so we definitely need you here, but it is more than Sunday morning in which you are needed. You see, we need help in telling the story of Jesus Christ on our streets and our communities. We need help sharing the word about what he has done and what he is doing in his local church. We need mission-minded people who will go into our local school and be a light to the children of our community. We need folks to visit the widow and the orphan and the prisoner and share the hope and love of Jesus Christ with them. We need people empowering the folks who are going to resource or, or empowering the folks who are going by resourcing them and sowing into the work. We need folks with an organizing mindset to help organize these different efforts and actions that are going on in our city. We need folks just quietly behind the scenes doing the Lord's work. Like one of the sisters here in our own church who quietly goes about the business of preparing desserts each and every single gathering for City Light Teens, not seeking credit in return. And her contribution is well received and well needed. Listen to me, saints. You have a role in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your gifting will contribute to the building up, the strengthening, and the uniting and unifying of God's church. The reason why you aren't, or the reason why you aren't a hand is because the church can't walk if it has no feet. The reason that you aren't an eye is because the church can't hear if it doesn't have any ears. Every single member of God's church brings something that is used in the building of the Lord's church. Verse 18, it says, but as it is, God arranged the members of uh, the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. 
God has so arranged the members. He has gifted people as he has chosen. He has put what you have in you for the purpose of being used for his glory. Some of it in his building, but some of it and a lot of it outside of the building. Your gifting, whether public or private, has been ordained by God to be used for his glory and to build up his church that you have been joined to. Now, let's look at the second point. I don't need you. We talked about two vantage points. One, I don't feel like you need me. The other, I don't need you. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the, uh, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. This is for the arrogant saint. This is for the one whose public gifting has now convinced, uh, convinced himself or herself that they are God's gift to God's church. Saints, we are not meant to function on our own. We are not meant to function independent of one another. We are not meant to use our gifting for our own shine. We are meant to use our gifting in order that Jesus might shine. In fact, listening to Paul, we hear that without the gifting of others, we lose out on something that God desires for us to have. Paul says early on in chapter 12 that it is for the common good that God gives the spirit, the manifestation of the spirit to all. In other words, for the common good, you have the gift that you have. And somebody has the gift that they have for your good. Does that make sense? How do we rectify this? How do we, how, do we, how do we turn this pride that seems to creep in when, when people have public gifts and they are elevated above everyone else? Simply by reversing the celebrity mentality. See, because we are so influenced by celebrity culture, we tend to think that the people that are in public are the people that we need to shine the most light on and put the most attention or draw the most attention to. Paul doesn't see it that way. Look at verse 22. He says, on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our present, more present, or presentable parts do not require. But God God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. How are you abiding in this text? How are you obeying this text? How are you giving honor to the vessels that lack it? around you? How are you giving attention to the weak around you? How are you giving attention to the vulnerable around you? Are you giving attention to those whose gifting is more private? Are you ensuring that they know that their contribution is valued? That they are valuable, that they are important? Are you making sure that those that are vulnerable know that there are people there that love them and that there are people there that are willing to do whatever is required to, tend, to attend to their need? Are you making sure that the weak are strengthened around you? Saints, this is the way of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. Though he had all the wealth in heaven, he came down from heaven and took on the form of a lowly carpenter. And, in so, and, and by being poor, he made us rich. Though he was the embodiment of strength, 
He needed aid as he carried his cross up the hill. Though he was the embodiment of life, he absorbed death for the dying. Though he was the embodiment of perfect, he absorbed sin's debt for the sinful. You see, when we give the, when we turn our attention and we reverse the celebrity mentality and we turn our attention to those that are weak and those that are, le- are given less vision or given less, less attention, we are embodying our Lord and Savior. We are embodying what it means to be the body of Jesus Christ. Every member different, yet every member essential. This is what it means to be the body of Christ, interwoven, interconnected, not independent, but relying on one another, leaning on one another. This is what it means to be the body of Christ, different yet united. This is what it means to be the body of Christ, different yet essential. And so now let us go take every gift that the Lord has entrusted to you for his glory And let's lean into this body that he has placed us in with his own blood so that this body might be edified, this body might be strengthened, and this body might be united. Let's pray.